Chapter 17 of the Autobiography of Benjamin Franklin by Benjamin Franklin. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Franklin's Defense of the Frontier While the several companies in the city and country were forming, and learning of their exercise, the governor prevailed with me to take charge of our northwestern frontier, which was infested by the enemy and provide for the defense of the inhabitants by raising troops and building a line of forts i undertook this military business though i did not conceive myself well qualified for it he gave me a commission with full powers and a parcel of blank commissions for officers to be given to whom i thought fit I had but little difficulty in raising men soon having five hundred and sixty under my command my son who had in the preceding war been an officer in the army raised against canada was my aide-de-camp and of great use to me the indians had burned gnadenhut a village settled by the moravians and massacred the inhabitants but the place was thought a good situation for one of the forts in order to march thither i assembled the companies at bethlehem the chief establishment of those people i was surprised to find it in so good a posture of defence the destruction of gnadenhut had made them apprehend danger the principal buildings were defended by a stockade they had purchased a quantity of arms and ammunition from new york and had even placed quantities of small paving stones between the windows of the high stone houses for their women to throw down upon the heads of any indians that should attempt to force into them the armed brethren too kept watch and relieved as methodically as in any garrison town a conversation with the bishop spangenberg i mentioned this my surprise for knowing that they had obtained an act of parliament exempting them from military duties in the colonies i had supposed they were conscientiously scrupulous of bearing arms he answered me that it was not one of their established principles but that at the time of their obtaining that act it was thought to be a principle with many of their people on this occasion however they to their surprise found it adopted by but a few it seems they were either deceived in themselves or deceived the parliament but common sense aided by present danger will sometimes be too strong for whimsical opinions it was the beginning of january when we set out upon this business of building forts I sent one detachment toward the Minisink, with instructions to erect one for the security of that upper part of the country, and another to the lower part, with similar instructions, and I concluded to go myself with the rest of my force to Gnadenhut, where a fort was thought more immediately necessary. The Moravians procured me five wagons for our tools, stores, baggage, etc., just before we left bethlehem eleven farmers who had been driven from their plantations by the indians came to me requesting a supply of firearms that they might go back and fetch off their cattle i gave them each a gun with suitable ammunition we had not marched many miles before it began to rain and it continued raining all day 
There were no habitations on the road to shelter us till we arrived uh, near night at the house of a German, where, and in his barn, we were all huddled together, as wet as water could make us. It was well we were not attacked in our march, for our arms were of the most ordinary sort, and our men could not keep the gun-locks dry. Footnote. Flint lock guns, discharged by means of a spark, struck from flint and steel into powder priming in open pan. The Indians are dexterous in contrivances for that purpose, which we had not. They met that day the eleven poor farmers above mentioned, and killed ten of them. The one who escaped informed that his and his companion's guns would not go off, the priming being wet with the rain. The next day being fair, we continued our march, and arrived at the desolated Gnadenhut. There was a sawmill near, round which were left several piles of boards, with which we soon hutted ourselves, an operation the more necessary at that inclement season, as we had no tents. Our first work was to bury more effectively the dead we found there, who had been half interred by the country people. The next morning our fort was planned and marked out. The circumference measured four hundred and fifty-five feet, which would require as many palisades to be made of trees, one with another, of a foot diameter each. Our axes, of which we had seventy, were immediately set to work to cut down trees, and our men being dexterous in the use of them, great dispatch was made. Seeing the trees fall so fast, I had the curiosity to look at my watch, when two men began to cut at a pine. In six minutes they had it upon the ground, and I found it of fourteen inches diameter. Each pine made three palisades of eighteen feet long, pointed at one end. While these were preparing, our other men dug a trench all around, of three feet deep, in which the palisades were to be planted, and our wagons, the bodies being taken off, and the fore and hind wheels separated by taking out the pin, which united the two parts of the perch. Footnote. Perch. Here, the pole connecting the front and rear wheels of a wagon. We had ten carriages, with two horses each, to bring the palisades from the woods to the spot. When they were set up, our carpenters built a stage of boards all around within, about six feet high, for the men to stand on when to fire through the loopholes. We had one swivel gun, which we mounted on one of the angles, and fired it as soon as we fixed, to let the Indians know, if any were within hearing, that we had such pieces. And thus our fort, if such a magnificent name might be given to so miserable a stockade, was finished in a week, though it rained so hard every other day that the men could not work. This gave me occasion to observe that, when men are employed, they are best contented, for on the days they worked they were good-natured and cheerful, and with a consciousness of having done a good day's work they spent the evening jollily. But on our idle days they were mutinous and quarrelsome, finding fault with their pork, the bread, etc., and in continual ill-humor, which put me in mind of a sea-captain, whose rule it was to keep his men constantly at work, 
and when his mate once told him that they had done everything and there was nothing further to employ them about, oh, he says, make them scour the anchor. This kind of fort, however contemptible, is a sufficient defense against Indians, who have no cannon. Finding ourselves now posted securely, and having a place to retreat to on occasion, we ventured out in parties to scour the adjacent country. We met with no Indians, but we found the places in the neighboring hills where they had lain to watch our proceedings. There was an art in their contrivance of those places that seems worth mention. It being winter, a fire was necessary for them, but a common fire on the surface of the ground would by its light have discovered their position at a distance. They had, therefore, dug holes in the ground about three feet in diameter and somewhat deeper. We saw where they had, with their hatchets, cut off the charcoal from the sides of burnt logs lying in the woods. With these coals they had made small fires in the bottom of the holes, and we observed among the weeds and grass the prints of their bodies, made by laying all around, with their legs hanging down in the holes to keep their feet warm, which with them is an essential point. This kind of fire so managed could not discover them, either by its flame, light, sparks, or even smoke. It appeared that their number was not great, and it seems they saw we were too many to be attacked by them with prospect of advantage. We had our own chaplain, a zealous Presbyterian minister, Mr. Beatty, who complained to me that the men did not generally attend his prayers and exhortations. When they enlisted, they were promised, besides pay and provisions, a gill of rum a day, which was punctually served out to them half in the morning and the other half in the evening, and I observed they were as punctual in attending to receive it. Upon which I said to Mr. Beatty, it is, perhaps, below the dignity of your profession to act as a steward of the rum, but if you were to deal it out, and only just after prayers, you would have them all about you. He liked the thought, undertook the office, and, with the help of a few hands to measure out the liquor, executed it to satisfaction, and never were prayers more generally and more punctually attended." so that I thought this method preferable to the punishment inflicted by some military laws for non-attendance on divine service. I had hardly finished this business and got my fort well stored with provisions when I received a letter from the governor acquainting me that he had called the assembly and wished my attendance there. If the posture of affairs on the frontiers was such that my remaining there was no longer necessary. My friends, too, of the assembly, pressing me by their letters to be, if possible, at the meeting, and my three intended forts being now completed, and the inhabitants contented to remain on their farms under that protection, I resolved to return. The more willingly, as a New England officer, Colonel Clapham, experienced in Indian war, being on a visit to our establishment, consented to accept the command." 
I gave him a commission, and, parading the garrison, had it read before them, and introduced him to them as an officer who, from his skill in military affairs, was much more fit to command them than myself, and, giving them a little exhortation, took my leave. I was escorted as far as Bethlehem, where I rested a few days to recover from the fatigue I had undergone. The first night, being in a good bed, I could hardly sleep. It was so different from my hard lodging on the floor of our hut at Gnadden, wrapped only in a blanket or two. While at Bethlehem, I inquired a little into the practice of the Moravians. Some of them had accompanied me, and all were very kind to me. I found they worked for a common stock, ate at common tables, and slept in common dormitories, great numbers together. In the dormitories I observed loopholes at certain distances all along just under the ceiling, which I thought judiciously placed for change of air. I was at their church, where I was entertained with good music, the organ being accompanied with violins, hot-boys, flutes, clarinets, etc., I understood that their sermons were not usually preached to mixed congregations of men, women, and children, as is our common practice, but that they assembled sometimes the married men, and other times their wives, then the young men, the young women, and the little children, each division by itself. The sermon I heard was to the latter, who came in and were placed in rows on benches, the boys under the conduct of a young man, their tutor, and the girls conducted by a young woman. The discourse seemed well adapted to their capacities, and was delivered in a pleasing, familiar manner, coaxing them, as it were, to be good. They behaved very orderly, but looked pale and unhealthy, which made me suspect they were kept too much within doors, and not allowed sufficient exercise. I inquired concerning the Moravian marriages, whether the report was true that they were by lot. I was told that lots were used only in particular cases, that generally, when a young man found himself disposed to marry, he informed the elders of his class, who consulted the elder ladies that governed the young women. As these elders of the different sexes were well acquainted with the tempers and dispositions of their respective pupils, they could best judge what matches were suitable, and their judgments were generally acquiesced in. But if, in, for example, it should happen that two or three young women were found to be equally proper for the young man, the lot was then recurred to. I objected. If the matches are not made by mutual choice of the parties, some of them may chance to be very unhappy. And so they may, answered my informer, if you let the parties choose for themselves, which indeed I could not deny. Being returned to Philadelphia, I found the association went on swimmingly. The inhabitants that were not Quakers, having pretty generally come into it, formed themselves into companies, and chose their captains, lieutenants, and ensigns according to the new law. Dr. B. visited me and gave me an account of the pains he had taken to spread a general good liking to the law, and ascribed much to those endeavors. I had had the vanity to ascribe all to my dialogue. However, not knowing but that he might be in the right, 
I let him enjoy his opinion, which I take to be generally the best way in such cases. The officers' meeting chose me to be the colonel of the regiment, which I this time accepted. I forgot how many companies we had, but we paraded around twelve hundred well-looking men, with a company of artillery, who had been furnished with six brass field-pieces, which they had become so expert in the use of as to fire twelve times in a minute. The first time I reviewed the regiment, they accompanied me to my house, and would salute me with some rounds fired before my door, which shook down and broke several glasses of my electrical apparatus. And my new honor proved not much less brittle." for all our commissions were soon after broken by a repeal of the law in England. During this short time of my colonelship, being about to set out on a journey to Virginia, the officers of my regiment took it into their heads that it would be proper for them to escort me out of town as far as the lower ferry. Just as I was getting on horseback, they came to my door, between thirty and forty, mounted, and all in their uniforms. I had not been previously acquainted with the project, or I should have prevented it, being naturally averse to the assuming of state on any occasion, and I was a good deal chagrined at their appearance, as I could not avoid their accompanying me. What made it worse was that, as soon as we began to move, they drew their swords and rode with them naked all the way. Somebody wrote an account of this to the proprietor, and it gave him great offense. No such honor had been paid him when in the province, nor to any of his governors, and he said it was only proper to princes of the blood royal, which may be true for aught I know, who was, and still am, ignorant of the etiquette of such classes. This silly affair, however, greatly increased his rancor against me, which was before not a little, on account of my conduct in the assembly respecting the exemption of his estate from taxation, which I had always opposed very warmly, and not without severe reflections on his meanness and injustice of contending for it. He accused me to the ministry as being the great obstacle to the king's service, preventing, by my influence in the house, the proper form of the bills for raising money, and he instanced this parade with my officers as proof of my having an intention to take the government of the province out of his hands by force. He also applied to Sir Everard Falconer, the postmaster-general, to deprive me of my office, but it had no other effect than to procure from Sir Everard a gentle admonition. Notwithstanding the continual wrangle between the governor and the house in which I, as a member, had so large a share, there still subsisted a civil intercourse between that gentleman and myself, and we never had any personal difference. I have sometimes since thought that his little or no resentment against me, for the answers it was known I drew up to his messages, might be the effect of professional habit, and that, being bred a lawyer, he might consider us both as merely advocates for contending clients in a suit, he for the proprietaries, and I for the assembly." He would, therefore, sometimes call, in a friendly way, to advise with me on difficult points, and sometimes, though not often, 
take my advice. We acted in concert to supply Braddock's army with provisions, and when the shocking news arrived of his defeat, the governor sent in haste for me, to consult with him on measures for preventing the desertion of the back counties. I forgot now the advice I gave, but I think it was that Dunbar should be written to and prevailed with, if possible, to post his troops on the frontiers for their protection, till, by reinforcements from the colonies, he might be able to proceed on the expedition. And, after my return from the frontier, he would have had me undertake the conduct of such an expedition with provincial troops, for the reduction of Fort Duchesne, Dunbar and his men being otherwise employed, and he proposed to commission me as general. I had not so good an opinion of my military abilities as he professed to have and I believe his professions must have exceeded his real sentiments. But, probably, he might think that my popularity would facilitate the raising of the men, and my influence in assembly, the grant of money to pay them, and that, perhaps, without taxing the proprietary estate. Finding me not so forward to engage as he expected, the project was dropped, and he soon after left the government, being superseded by Captain Denny. End of chapter 17